Father, it's a special time when we, your family, gather together. And together we come to you in prayer. It's special, Lord, because you're the one who has initiated the opportunity. You're the one, dear God, who's quickened us spiritually and who, through the power of your Holy Spirit, has helped us to understand things that we would not otherwise understand. That we are all sinners. Born into this world, sinners with no hope except the hope that we have in your Son, Jesus the Christ. You're the one, dear God, who's caused your Holy Spirit to bring us to faith and caused us to say with our own lips that we believe in Jesus, that we believe he is your Son and that he was raised from the dead, and that he's going to come back to claim his church triumphant for eternity. What a miracle you've worked in us that we should believe that. But dear God, we're here to give you thanks for that which we do believe. And that which we know will be a reality. What a God that you would love us while we were yet sinners. What a God that you would love us today with the past week behind us. Father, we have made a mess out of our lives while we've had very beautiful experiences also. In the privacy of our own thoughts, we have sinned against you. In the way we've conducted ourselves with other people, the way we have thought about them and the way we've treated them, there have been times when we've done things that are unthinkable. And Lord, there have been opportunities around us this past week to reach out and to let the glory and the light of the Lord Jesus Christ shine all around us and touch other people's lives, and we have dimmed that light. I ask you to forgive us. And Father, if there are sins, which I'm sure there are that I've not mentioned, I pray your special blessing on us, that they might also be forgiven. But not a cheap forgiveness. The kind of forgiveness that comes when we are compelled by your Holy Spirit to ask for that forgiveness. And when we have a new resolve that says, Lord, we're going to let you wash us clean again. And we're going to make every effort to live the kind of life you want us to live. And Father, with those kind of thoughts, we come to you knowing that through the shed blood of Christ, that forgiveness is ours. And that you're making us day by day more like Jesus. And that as we approach the day when Jesus comes again. That we're not going to cower away from that day of judgment. But we're going to rejoice as that's the entrance into eternal life. Thank you dear God for the grace you show us. Thank you for the love that you have demonstrated that we're trying to emulate in our own lives. Help us, I pray, dear God, to be the people you want us to be. Father, starting at the very top in our government at this time for our president and vice president, 
and for their families and for those who sit in judicial offices and the rest of the executive branch and the legislative branch, we do pray this day for the moving of your Holy Spirit. What a wonder it would be, dear God, if you brought them as a group and individually to their knees before you, that their hearts and their minds might be captured by you, and then they might be your tools willingly. We pray, dear God, for those who are in military uniforms and for those who are in the uniforms of policemen and firemen and a whole variety of other people, for those in the nursing community, for those who are doctors. We pray, dear God, for those who are in the helping services. And don't just pray for their physical well-being, but we pray, dear God, for their spiritual well-being. How exciting it is, Father, to see your children perform secular functions under the power of your Holy Spirit and do it because they love you. Father, there are so many other things that we could talk about this morning, but there's one that's always pressing when we come together, and that's in our own personal lives. We have challenges in our life, Lord, and you know that better than we. We have challenges that touch us and make us afraid and give us concern about the present and the future. And some of those concerns are for ourselves and for our own health and for our own wealth. Sometimes it's for a neighbor or a member of our family. Sometimes, Lord, you put somebody on our heart that we wouldn't normally think about. And I pray, dear God, your blessing on those individuals, and I pray that you would give us opportunity to help give them a spiritual assurance that you are alive and active in our lives. And you've never walked away from us and you never are going to walk away. I pray for our church, Lord. I pray not only that we would grow stronger and stronger in the days ahead, but I pray, dear God, that our effect in this community and around the world would be significantly increased. Not just in helping people physically, while that's so important, but for us to be a living witness to other people about Jesus and about the grace of the Lord. Father, I wonder, in this next week, who it is you'd have us speak to. I wonder who you've already prepared, someone that we might not even be aware of, and that as we feel the moving of your Holy Spirit, we feel the security of talking about Jesus. I pray you'd use us, Lord. And I pray we'd want to be used, that we would surrender to you. Dear God, what a wonderful opportunity you give us today to come and to sing and to pray and to have communion together and hear your word preached and to be fortified and encouraged And to know that you're going to walk out of this place with us. And that you're going to be our companion. And to know that you love us. Thank you, Father, for our time together. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
Our passage this morning comes from 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter. 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter. We're going to start our study with the 27th verse. And we're going to study through the 32nd verse. 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, beginning with the 27th verse. If you would, open your Bibles and keep your Bibles open, because I would like very much for you to refer back to the passage as I walk through the passage with you. Let's get some help before we study the Word. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as your children, asking you to open up our eyes, our ears, to peel back those things that cover our heart that make us spiritually insensitive. And for the next few moments, Lord, for us to hear from you clearly, distinctly, and with application in our own personal lives. I pray the moving of your Holy Spirit, and I ask your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to read a proverb to you, one verse, before I start on the sermon. It's Proverbs 28:13, and it goes like this. He who conceals his sins does not prosper. Y'all hear that? He who conceals his sins does not prosper. He goes on to say, But whoever confesses and renounces them, renounces is an interesting word, is repentant, renounces them, finds mercy. Now I want you to keep that in mind. If we have sin in our life and we cover that sin over, You know what? God's going to uncover it. But if we have sin in our life, the antithesis of that is, if we uncover it and confess it, guess what he promises to do? To cover it over. And to help us be victorious. Now, with that in mind, and that maybe I could just stop right there. That's a sermon in itself. With that in mind, I want to give you an example of how that works. 1902, up in North Carolina, a company was formed called the Toxaway Company. The board of directors of that company had a vision, and their vision was to go into the mountainous areas of North Carolina to pick a place, they picked a place called Toxaway, and to create a resort for people from all over the East Coast and up in the northern parts of our country. They found a place. They cleared the land. They started to build a dam. When they started to build the dam, they decided to put pipes on the floor of the would-be lake and allow them to come through the dam and create a spillway. And there was a natural kind of little falls area and they call that Toxaway Falls as that water would come out of those pipes off the bottom of the lake. Well, they got the pipes in place and they built this earthen dam and it became the largest privately owned lake and still is to this day in North Carolina. 
as the lake was filling up, and it took a couple of years for that to happen from the river that flowed through it and also from other tributaries, <clears throat> they started clearing land around the lake. Some entrepreneurs found out what they were doing, and they bought a piece of land on the northeast corner of what would become the lake, and they built a wooden, beautiful, luxurious, 500-room hotel. Now, folks, in the early 1900s, that was quite a feat. Railroad found out what was going on. They built a spur from Asheville to Toxaway. And at its peak, they had four trainloads of people a day coming and going from this new luxury resort. People like Henry Ford, like the Firestones, and like a variety of other very well-known American founding fathers who were part of our Industrial Revolution. The lake filled up. People started coming to visit. Everybody was happy with the prosperity they were getting out of it. People would come and stay in that beautiful luxury hotel. They would get into that beautiful lake and boat on the lake. They'd go down and they'd stand below those pipes at Toxaway Falls and they'd allow that water to cascade over them and they'd walk away thinking they'd had a mineral bath and that it was really good for them physically. Then a hurricane came up the east coast of the United States of America turned to the northwest after leaving Charleston, South Carolina, and found its way to the Lake Toxaway and stopped and dumped an inordinate amount of water on the whole Asheville area and to the southwest of Asheville. The French Broad River started to swell in Asheville. Other rivers began to reach the crest and about to get out of their banks. Then the hurricane dissipated, and before they knew what had happened, another hurricane came up the East Coast. And as if it was guided by Providence, it ended up over Asheville and over Lake Toxaway. And the water levels continued to rise, and the ground couldn't absorb all of it. It dissipated. And within the month, a hurricane came in off the Gulf of Mexico, came across the panhandle of Florida, across Georgia, went to Lake Toxaway and stopped and stayed right on top of Lake Toxaway and just emptied all the water in the world on top of that lake. They didn't have adequate spillways to handle the flood of water. The dam broke. The water went downstream through North Carolina and did damage in South Carolina as South Carolina rivers came out of their banks. Tourists didn't get on the trains and come down to an empty, muddy piece of land. The hotel had no one to stay in it. The prosperity overnight changed. Then the hotel caught fire, and a substantial part of it burned down. Now, that's in 1912 to 1916, all of that devastation took place. In 1948, they finally tore the balance of that hotel down. In the 1960s, a new group of folks got together and started the Toxaway Company again. 
And they went in with bulldozers, and the first thing they were going to do was to dam up a dam, put a dam on the river, and start building that lake back, and they were buying property around it. And when their bulldozers got down and started pushing, trying to get that new dam in place, they ran into a huge obstacle. They finally realized what the obstacle was. I see a couple of you nodding. I think you've heard about this. It was trainloads of iron that had been dumped at the mouth of those pipes just inside the lake. And the iron rusted, and that's where the mineral baths came from. God uncovers our sins. It may take a while, but he does it. And in that case, the people who originally built the dam were exposed for something that they did they should not have done. They told people there were minerals in that water, and the only minerals were rust from the iron. Incidentally, that's a beautiful lake today and a wonderful place to visit, and I'm not on commission. But it is really a beautiful place. Now, with all of that in mind, that God does uncover our sins, so we need to deal with our sins. The Apostle Paul says to the church at Corinth, let me tell you what you do about your sins before you come to that table. And now he tells us, and I want you to follow along as I read, beginning in 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, beginning with the 27th verse. Therefore... Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. Folks, God just spoke to us about a very serious topic. We take communion in our church once a month and on Monday, Thursday, 13 times a year. We need to stop and think about what we're doing before we take communion. And that's why Paul is giving us this instruction. So may God bless it to our hearing and to the practice that influences our life. We do a thing in the Presbyterian Church, and fortunately some other denominations practice this. We fence the table. You've heard that term before? Fencing the table is what a minister does before you come to the table. He builds a fence around it in word, and he says, let me tell you what you need to think about before you come to this table. And most of the time, we turn to this passage and say, let me explain this, and you'll hear it come across from me and from other ministers in a whole variety of ways. And what we're saying is you need to examine yourself and you need to understand what we're about to do. I have been to churches, and I'm sure you have, where you've taken communion and no one has ever fenced the table. No one's ever given a warning or instructions to help you understand the cost at which that table was set for us. 
and what God wants us to think about before we come to that table. And when that happens to me, it grieves my spirit. There are those who say that we ought to allow our children who are non-communing members, have not made a profession of faith, have not met with our session, but want to be admitted to the table so they can share in the sacrament. That also grieves me. Because as you hear me preach this passage, you're going to understand our children need to know about this. And your elders and I will get children ready to take communion before we admit them. Now, with all of that as a precursor, I want you to look with me at the 27th and 28th verses, which start to talk about examining ourselves. There's some key words in those verses. He says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Unworthy. That's an important word. You and I are sinners. We were born sinners. We are going to be sinners all of our life, saved by grace. Hopefully we overcome sin as we grow older in our faith and mature. But at the moment that Jesus comes again, we're still sinners. So what's he talking about when he says when we come in an unworthy manner, we're all sinners? In that sense, we all come as unworthy people. This table is absolutely an act and demonstration of grace at its ultimate. In spite of our sin, we're invited to this table. So Paul and the Lord must have something very specific in mind when he says, don't come to this table in an unworthy manner. I think what he's saying is, don't come to this table without any forethought. In our tradition, we put an announcement in our bulletin a week beforehand to encourage you to prepare yourself for this event. And it's so that you can come in a worthy manner. Other people come, unfortunately, in an unworthy manner by doing this as ritual. It's just part of what we do. We sing hymns, we pray, we listen to a sermon, we take communion. It's not that casual, folks. It's not. The Holy Spirit stands ready to minister to us through this sacrament just as he does through his preached word. It's a personal contact with God. It's an engrafting into the Lord Jesus Christ individually where you and I have a renewed experience with him. So it's not a ritual. It's alive and active every time we do it. I think coming in an unworthy manner also means if we have sin that somebody else may know about or know the human knows about, you do have some of the latter, don't you? Things that we think just we know about? Well, God knows about them. And you cannot cover those sins up and have them not become exposed. So what is being said is, don't come to this table without being repentant. And you'll hear me in a few moments as I fence the table, you'll hear me say, If you have sin and it's not resolved, don't take this. Let it pass by. But if you're willing to repent, becoming worthy in that sense, then by all means, repent, ask God's forgiveness, and come to the table because it's set for repentant sinners. You know, in a sermon, I I never ask you if 
You got it. And I never ask you to hold your hand up if you want clarification. And I'm not going to start today. But I hope you got that. I hope you understand because we're all unworthy, but there's something we can do about this kind of unworthiness. He says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Doesn't say might be. Says absolutely, if you and I come to this table in an unworthy manner, Jesus died and we're causing that in a sense to reoccur because of our ongoing sin. And Paul is saying to us, he's admonishing us and saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Jesus has already died once and for all. Let's not go back there again. His death was sufficient for the forgiveness of any and all sins. Let's not revisit that. If you look on in that same passage, he then says in the next verse, but a man must examine himself. It's interesting how he uses these imperatives. Shall, must, will. He doesn't say you should examine yourself. He's saying if you're going to come to this table, you must take time to examine yourself. And you know, we have a sin that is the same sin that Adam and Eve had. And the way you can see that sin is we don't want to take responsibility for our actions. Instinctively, we want to blame somebody else. Well, they made me do this. They conditioned the situation. So I just had to naturally do it. That's not true. You and I are accountable for what we do. And what Paul is saying is, I want you to stop right there, dead in your tracks, and I want you to stop trying to blame somebody else, and I want you to look at yourself. I want you to do introspection. I want you to look inside and say, who am I really? Not who is this person that dresses up on Sunday. Who am I? Down deep inside. And as we examine ourselves and look and own up to who we are, God wants us to repent before we come to the table. Now, we're fortunate because we get to do it 13 times a year. This is an organized way for us to stop and look at ourselves and for us to evaluate who we are and ask God's forgiveness. You can look at some traditions, particularly our Presbyterian tradition, which comes originally from Scotland, and what you will see is that the Scottish church had a practice that they brought to the United States and to this moment is still practiced in a few Scottish-slash-Presbyterian churches. And that is that the coin, a little token, could be received by a communicant member of a church by calling on the elder, an elder of the church, and meeting with that elder and saying, I have examined myself. And when the elder felt comfortable with that parishioner saying, I have done this self-examination, he would give a token to them, and they'd come to church on Sunday, and when the elements would come, the elder passing the elements to him would want the token. And you present the token, and he allows you to take communion. That was to encourage the church. 
if that sounds legalistic, I think in our day we need a little bit more of that accountability. There's not much accountability in our world today. It was well-intentioned, but it's fallen into dispractice. But what Paul is saying is, it's really your responsibility and mine. I want you to know that I always try at least a week before communion to start getting ready. I hope that's not symbolic of the size of the things I have to deal with. But I want to deal with the conflicts. I want to deal with the things that shouldn't be, that so often are. And I think that's what Paul is saying to you. Examine yourself. And as you examine yourself, deal with the stuff you need to deal with. If you look on down in the next two verses, 29 and 30, you see some of the consequences of coming to this table in an unworthy manner and being guilty of the body and blood of Jesus. One of those is that you're going to bring judgment on yourself. Excuse me, I want to make a distinction between the word judgment and the word condemnation. When we come to this table in an unworthy manner, our salvation is not at stake. Condemnation. When we come to this table in an unworthy manner, absolutely we can bring judgment, a temporal judgment, a judgment right now on ourselves. And that judgment works a hardship on us because it separates us from God and breaks communion with Him. And you go away feeling guilty or feeling nothing. And that's not what God intends. This is supposed to bring us closer to Him. So that judgment is devastating. That judgment is today and tomorrow. And that judgment comes to light on Judgment Day. When Jesus stands us up and says, let's take an accounting publicly of where you have been and what you have thought and what you have done. And there absolutely will be a day of judgment. Not to determine if we have eternal life. We're saved by grace. So what is the judgment about? We've been hopefully building up crowns in heaven. We also have building up, been building up judgment in heaven. I don't know how this works, and if any of you know how it works, please tell me. I don't know of anybody who is sure about it, but something about our positioning in heaven is determined by the crowns and by the judgments. I heard someone say, I accept that. I just want in. I can understand that also. But what the Lord is saying to us is, I don't want you to suffer that consequence. I want you to examine yourself, and I want you to be rid of this problem so you don't have to deal with it now, and you don't have to deal with it eternally. There's another consequence. He says some are weak, some are sick, and some are asleep. Asleep. You've looked at someone who has died, and don't they look like they're asleep? That's where that comes from. So what Paul is saying to us is, one of the consequences of coming to the table in an unworthy manner is that physically, emotionally, or spiritually, you may become weak. 
you may even die. Now, I promised myself I'd give a disclaimer. When I get sick with my sinus trouble, it has nothing to do with sin. It's just physical. It has nothing to do with what I just read. You can get sick because these are fallen, broken bodies, and you can have emotional problems, and you can even have spiritual problems, and it's not a direct result of coming to this table in an unworthy manner. Having said that, some of those things are a direct result. And we owe it to ourselves to stop and say, is there an origin for some of what I am facing in the way I have come in an unworthy manner to this table? And it's important for us to stop for our own sake and the sake of our families and take a look at all of that. John Calvin made an interesting statement that I sat and pondered for a while as I was working on my sermon. He said, all of this is true, and you may experience some weakness because of the way you've come to the table. You may get sick emotionally, physically, and you might even die. But it doesn't all happen at one time, and it doesn't happen instantaneously. Some people stretch all that over a lifetime. If you stretch the consequences over a lifetime, we are destroying the beautiful life that he intended us to have. And what he wants us to do is to find pleasure in him and in the life he's given us. And if that's not happening, one of the bases we ought to touch is to say, what am I doing when I come to communion? Am I coming in a worthy manner? Verses 31 and 32 talk about the rewards, the good stuff, how we can avoid that judgment. And it's very simple. You avoid the judgment by examining yourself and being repentant and then coming to the table. You know, there was a great American philosopher that just has really touched my heart and the hearts of a lot of you, Barney Fife. Wasn't he a great philosopher? You remember what he said? Just nip it in the bud. How true that is. When there's a sin and it starts to manifest itself up here, nip it in the bud. Get rid of it right now. Don't let it manifest itself. Don't let it influence your life. Just say, I'm not going there. I'm not going to let that happen. So you nip it in the bud. You repent, and with joy you come to this table, and you partake of these elements. Another reward. See if you believe this is a reward. God sees us in sin. Maybe we're trying to hide the sin. Maybe we've become so callous we're not trying to hide it anymore, and we come to this table. So God disciplines us. Just like a loving parent disciplines a child. And scripture is very clear when it says, but if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will, another imperative, not be condemned along with the world. If we're on a path of destruction, 
if we're on a path that ultimately, in a human sense, would lead us to total separation from God eternally, and God has chosen us to be his, guess what? He's not going to let that happen. He is God, and he is not thwarted by us or by Satan or by anybody. So if you and I are on a path where we have a sin tucked away and we become so callous we're not dealing with it and we're partaking of the body of the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, at some point God may say, well, we're going to stop that because where that's going is not where I'm going to let you go. So he disciplines us. Sometimes just a little because we come around quickly. Sometimes a pretty severe discipline, all done out of love in our best interest to help us get our lives together spiritually and to stop us from going the way of this world, which is eternal damnation. That's how much he loves us. He's not going to let that happen to us. He wants us to examine ourselves. And I'm going to give us an opportunity to do that right now. To bow our heads, to take a moment and just look at our own life. Don't look at your spouses. Don't look at the person sitting next to you. Don't think about somebody else. Think about yourself. Take responsibility for yourself. And if there is something you need to deal with privately, deal with it before we come to this table. And folks, if you do not deal with it privately and it's there... Let these elements go by you today. Let's spend a moment and let's commune with the Lord in our hearts and let's ask his forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, for being a Lord of grace and mercy. Thank you for allowing us to know that we need to examine ourselves and for giving us that opportunity before we come to this table. Thank you, Lord, for showing us how to avoid judgment and how to live a richer life and enjoy you more. Father, please set these elements aside for spiritual use. And please, Father, as we ingest them, allow them to nurture us spiritually and draw us closer to Jesus. Thank you for this opportunity, Father. In Christ's name, amen. Beloved in the Lord, hear what gracious words our Savior Christ saith unto all who truly turn unto him.